So we are in week two of our sermon series on the book of Amos. This is a four-part series. Uh, Pastor Mike began it last week, and uh, we're continuing this week with another uh, segment from the Old Testament prophet Amos. He was a Jewish prophet who was called by God to leave his job as a shepherd and a, uh, a tender of... Uh, fig trees, and to go and take God's message to God's people. And uh, Amos's time in Israel was really a time of contradictions in some ways. It was uh, a time when politically things were going well, the economy was thriving, uh, they were, people were very religious, observing all their holidays and offering sacrifices to God. They'd even had some military victories recently that had expanded their international influence in the region. Um, but God called Amos to bring a message that all was not as good as it seemed. That, in fact, God was not happy with his people and that he would soon judge them for their sin. In chapter 7, Amos tells us about an encounter that he had with God. Amos chapter 7, he says, this is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And I have here a, uh, a plumb line that we borrowed from one of the carpenters in our church. This is um, a tool that was used way back in the days of Amos, uh, thousands of years ago. It's still used today uh, to uh, work uh, on construction sites. Um, a tool like this is used uh, to, uh, to gauge straight up and down because the plumb line, um, because it's got this heavy solid brass uh, plumb bob on the end of it, it hangs perfectly straight. Once you, you know, if you wiggle it or something, it'll move. But, but uh, once it settles, it's a perfect straight up and down line. And um, in fact, uh, Jeff Wood, who we borrowed this one from, uh, explain, uh, mentioned to me that in fact, the point of the plumb bob is always pointing to the exact center of the earth because gravity is always pulling exactly straight at the center of the earth on it. So you get a very straight line that way. Um, one of the uses of a plumb line is to help a mason when he is building a wall, he wants it to be straight up and down. So you use a plumb line, it's especially important when the ground itself isn't perfectly level. So you can't judge if your wall is straight by judging is it a good 90 degrees with the ground because maybe the ground is a little bit off. But the plumb line is never a little bit off. It's always perfectly straight up and down. And so as you're laying bricks, when it comes to the next row of bricks, the next course of bricks that you're laying, you use the plumb line to make sure that that course is exactly straight on top of the ones below it. Because if you just eyeball it and you just lay your bricks and you think, ah, oh, that looks about straight, Pretty soon you might get off by a fraction here and there, and pretty soon your whole wall, once it gets high, is leaning to one side or the other. And then your wall is very liable to fall down. And so you use a plumb line to judge perfectly straight up and down, and you get a perfectly straight wall. Um, so Amos sees a vision of God standing with a plumb line in his hand. And the next verse says, And the Lord asked me, What do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. And the Lord said, Look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel, 
I will spare them no longer. So the plumb line is used to help as you're, as you're building something, but it can also be used to inspect a wall that has already been built. You can use it to see either whether your wall has been built properly, <clears throat> or if you have an older wall that's been there for a while and you want to see whether it has shifted. Uh, sometimes the foundation of the wall shifts a little bit and you need to test and see is that wall still straight and strong. And in this verse, uh, verse 7, it says that the wall that Amos has saw in his vision had been built true to plumb, but now God was coming to check the current state of affairs. Was the wall still straight or had it shifted? And of course, the meaning of the metaphor is that God has given his people instructions on how to live, how to behave toward others, how to worship him appropriately. They had been given a good start. They had been built true to plumb. But now he was coming to judge his people. He was going to hold up the standard to them and see whether they were still living according to the way that he had taught them in his word. And that is the major message of the book of Amos. God has given us a standard to live, up, uh, to live by, a standard on how we should treat one another and how we should worship him. And God judges his people according to the standard that he has revealed to us in his word. And last week, Pastor Mike talked about how Amos condemned all the nations around Israel for their sins. Uh, the sins that he judged them for were crimes against humanity. They were war crimes and uh, genocide and enslavement. But when he gets to the people of Judah and Israel, the people who had God's will written for them in a book, he condemns them for their failure to live up to the covenant that he had made with them. And Amos tells them that the consequences of their sin are coming soon. God will deal with his people in exactly the way he warned them back in the book of Deuteronomy. They will be conquered by a foreign nation and they will be expelled from the land that he has given them. So that's one kind of judgment. Sometimes God brings punishment on sinful people right here in this life, in the here and now. But as we talked about last week, there's also a final judgment coming when God will judge everyone. And our eternal destiny will be determined at that judgment. Now, some people read prophets like Amos, and, uh, and, and I encourage you to read the whole book, by the way, as we're going through this series. It'll only take you 15 or 20 minutes to read the whole book of Amos. But sometimes when you read a book like Amos, which really does have a lot of judgment and condemnation in it. Uh, people get this picture of God as a sadistic person who just can't wait to deal out death to everyone who crosses him. But that is not the biblical portrait of God. Yes, God is the just judge who will punish sin, but he is also a merciful God who calls people to repentance. That's why he sends prophets like Amos to warn the people about the coming judgment. And that is why we have the biblical warnings now about the final judgment. God does not want to condemn anyone at the judgment. The Bible tells us in the book of Ezekiel, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. 
Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? God does not want to punish us. He wants to save us. But God is holy and just, and the price for sin must be paid. And the Bible teaches that when God saw that there was no way that people could save themselves from the just judgment of sin, he provided a way of salvation by sending Jesus to pay the price for our sin, satisfying justice by his death on our behalf. God wants people to accept that salvation. That is why he sent the prophets who have written his message in the Bible for us to read and understand. God wants to write our names in the Lamb's book of life, as we talked about last week, so that we can live with him in paradise for all eternity. Now, in the portion of Amos that we're going to be focusing on today, the Bible tells us about another thing that God does in order to persuade us to turn from our sin. In addition to sending us the verbal messages of the prophets speaking and writing to us, he also does something else. Let's read from Amos chapter 4, and we're going to read most of the chapter right here. Amos chapter 4, starting with verse 6. God says, I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you, as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword, along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. What's the repeated line from that chapter? Yet you have not returned to me. Five times God describes hardships that he brought on his people, and five times he says, yet you have not returned to me. Why do you think God brought all these hardships onto the people? Because he wanted them to return to him. Hunger, drought, warfare, disaster, God sent these things as warnings so that his people would return to him and avoid the much greater judgment that would come if they did not return. But they did not return, and that is why at the end of the chapter he declares, Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel, and because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dark, dawn to darkness and treads the heights of the earth 
The Lord Almighty is his name. See, these smaller judgments have come as warnings to prepare God's people to stand before God at the judgment. These hardships are actually signs of God's mercy as he tries to prod them to repentance. These kinds of hardships are described in the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 12. So we go over to Hebrews chapter 12. It tells us there, um, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. Our human fathers, they say, did their best. They, they disciplined as they thought was right. Sometimes they did pretty well. Sometimes our human fathers were pretty far from the mark. But God's discipline is perfect, and God's discipline is always for our good, for our holiness, leading us to holiness. Hebrews goes on and says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. But of course, that that good harvest of discipline depends on how we respond to it. It is possible to be disciplined and to learn nothing from it. That was the problem in Amos' day, right? God had sent famine, drought, plagues, yet the people did not return to him. Parents, have you ever noticed that sometimes you discipline your children and they don't seem to learn from it? Sometimes. But guess what? Some of us, after we grow up, we're not really any better at learning from discipline than we were when we were toddlers. Now, there's two points I want to make about how we should respond to God's discipline. First, I want to talk about how to recognize God's discipline in our lives. And second, I want to talk about how we can benefit when God disciplines us. So how can we recognize God's discipline in our lives? And this question is important because not every bad thing that happens to us is God's discipline. Sometimes bad things happen because we live in a fallen world that includes things like sickness and natural disasters. And a lot of the bad stuff that happens in our lives is a result of the sinful behavior of other people around us. So, if your house took a lot of damage in the earthquake a couple of months back, does that mean that God was judging you for your sins? Not necessarily. There's a great story in the Bible about a guy who suffered a whole series of great tragedies, some of them from other people's sins, some from natural disasters. His name was Job, and he was a good man and followed God and lived a righteous life. And we know that no one is perfect. I'm sure Job wasn't perfect, but the Bible leaves out any discussion of any of Job's flaws and sins and presents him as a righteous man of God. And when all these tragedies hit, he has three friends who come to commiserate with him. 
And after they've sat with him for a while, and they just sit quietly and empathize with him for several days, after that's done, they decide they need to give Job some advice. And uh, here is a key example of the kind of advice that they give. This is Job's friend Eliphaz speaking here. He sees what has happened to Job, and he hears Job complaining and claiming that it is not because of his sin. Job says this is not the result of sin. And Eliphaz has his doubts. He says, is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? You see, Eliphaz is certain that what has happened to Job is God's judgment for his many sins. And he even has a pretty good idea what Job's sins have been. He goes on and says, You gave no water to the weary, and you withheld food from the hungry, though you were a powerful man, owning land, an honored man living on it. And you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. That is why snares are all around you, why sudden peril terrifies you, why it is so dark you cannot see, and why a flood of water covers you. You see, in the eyes of, of Eliphaz and the rest of Job's friends, there's only one reason why bad things happen to people. It is God's judgment on sin. At the end of the book, God breaks his silence, speaks to Job for several chapters. Powerful stuff. But then the Bible says, after God has finished speaking to Job, it says, after the Lord said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now, sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You see, that's a pretty strong repudiation of that idea that the tragic events in our lives are always the result of sin in our lives. Sometimes tragedies are the tragic result of living in a fallen world full of fallen people. So, if not all the bad things in our life are God's discipline, how do we know when a particular thing is God trying to get our attention to lead us to repentance? Because if we take the lesson we just saw in Job too far, it will put us in exactly the place that the people were in in Amos' day. They suffered all kinds of hardships and trials that really were God disciplining them and trying to bring them back because of their sin, but they failed to recognize it. So as I was working on this message, I was really struggled some to come up with a good answer to this. How can we tell when something bad happens? Is this God's judgment or is this just something bad that's happening? And so I was discussing the questions with some guys, and, uh, which is one of the things that I really like to do, and I've got a tough thing. I like to talk to people about it. It's better for me than just sitting and thinking on my own. Anyway, I was talking to a couple of guys, and Jeff Wood said something that helped me really come to what I think is the best answer I can give for this question. So here's what I think we should do. When something bad happens in our lives, a hardship, as it's called in Hebrews, the first thing we need to do is recognize the possibility that this is God 
disciplining us for our sins and trying to give us a warning. You see, we know from the Bible that God really does do this. This is something that is real, that God disciplines people and sends hard things in our lives in order to motivate us to turn back from our sins. It is not cruel, it is loving for God to try to bring us back away from the things that are harming us. God wants us to come to him in repentance for forgiveness so that the full consequences of our sin can be avoided. The second thing we need to do is we need to search our hearts to see if there are any unconfessed sins there that we need to deal with. In 1 Corinthians, as part of the instructions for taking the communion meal, it says, uh, everyone ought to examine themselves before taking the bread and drinking the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. See, the Bible is very specific here that this particular sin of eating the Lord's Supper inappropriately had resulted in physical discipline from God in this community. The Bible goes on to say, but if we... Uh, But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. So we are to examine ourselves. What are we looking for? We're looking for areas of our life that we know are out of step with the will of God? Are there things that we are doing that we know that God says are not right, but we are choosing to ignore God's will? Are there things that God has told us to do that we are knowingly neglecting to do? Now, of course, we all fail in many ways. There will always be something that needs to be corrected in our lives, but sometimes... We might be like Job and we might conclude, hey, uh, I have confessed and I have been forgiven for all the known sin in my life. And in that case, the difficulty that I'm facing is not God's discipline for sin. That is a, a, a real possibility that what is happening in your life is just bad things happening in your life. And if you feel like, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I am not willfully sinning against God. I'm not living in a pattern of defying God's will. That's not judgment from God. However, if we encounter a hardship and we examine ourselves and we see a problem, then what do we do? We confess it and we repent of the sin and we turn to God for forgiveness. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what if it's the same sin that you confessed last week and this, the week before too? 
and many other times? What if it's the same sin again? Can we keep coming back to God and confessing the same sins over and over again? Won't God realize that you're not really getting any better and you're probably going to do it again next week? And you're going to need to confess again tomorrow? Yes, God realizes that. And he wants you to come and ask him forgiveness and he will give it. Once when Jesus was teaching about forgiveness, Peter, one of his disciples, asked him, how many times must I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? And Peter thought seven times was a lot, and he was trying to be generous there, because if somebody does something to harm you, and you forgive them for it, and they come and do it again a second time, and you forgive them, and they come and do it a third time, and you forgive them, fourth time, you forgive seven times would be a lot. I would be kind of tired of that person by the seventh time. But uh, Jesus says, no, not seven times. You must forgive them eight times. No. Not eight times. Jesus said 70 times seven times. And that doesn't mean count up to 490 times and then you can not forget. No, the point is always forgive an unlimited number of times when someone comes to you and asks for forgiveness. Why? Because that is what God does. God disciplines us to bring us to repentance. And when we come to him and repent, he will never say, seriously, this is the 2,397th time you've come and confessed this exact same thing. Forget it. Once you've figured out how to stop doing that and not sin anymore, then come and ask me about it, and then we can talk about forgiveness. No, God's never going to say that. God is full of grace and mercy and he forgives those who come to him. So don't hesitate. If you examine yourself and you find that there is sin that you need to deal with, don't be like those ancient Israelites. Return to God. So those are the first two steps to take when you encounter a hardship. Recognize that it might be, it's possible that it could be God's discipline. And then do some self-examination to see if there was a sin that you need to confess. And the third step is to enjoy the blessings of God. So here's how that is described in, in Psalm 32. That psalm says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. And that word from the psalm is really the best conclusion for this message. When we find that God is sending hardships 
our way to discipline us, seek out any unconfessed sin in our lives, and pray to God for forgiveness. Let's pray now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for paying the price for our sins so that we can be forgiven. I pray that you would help us to not be stiff-necked like the Israelites who saw these hardships and refused to believe that they needed to come back to you. Lord, help us to come back to you every day, every week, every time we need to. In Jesus' name, amen.